verses 9 15. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child, now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Heard a story about a guy who was out of shape and overweight. No, it was not a story about myself. But he decided to get a gym membership. And he was getting a tour of the gym by one of the trainers when he noticed an attractive young lady working out on a particular machine. And so he nudged the trainer and said, hey, which of these machines should I use to impress that young lady over there? And the trainer looked him up and down and said, I think I'd try the ATM out in the lobby. The point of that is that there are some things that are impossible. In fact, it is good at times to acknowledge and recognize when there are some things that are impossible. For instance, up until 10th grade, I thought I would be an NBA basketball player. But in 10th grade, I realized I was the same height I was in 7th grade. So this isn't going to work out too well. And so is at that point, I decided I needed to pursue a different career. And I'm grateful that I did, because my life would have been miserable if I tried to pursue an MBA career. But there are some things that are outside the realm of possibility, and it's good to acknowledge those things. But there are other times when we succumb to impossibility in such a way that it's disappointing to God. And tonight, that's going to be our focus as we embark on our study of Abraham's life in, this event, in the events that unfold here in Genesis chapter 18. Now, last week, we were introduced to this chapter as we examined the hospitality that Abraham showed three strangers who appeared at his tent. And one thing we learned in that scenario is that God was one of those men that God appeared to, Mo, to Abraham in this situation as a man. And we know this because Genesis chapter 18 and verse 1 begins by clearly stating that the Lord appeared to Abraham. And, and those other two strangers that are with him, we find out later in Genesis chapter 18, in, in Genesis chapter 19, I should say, that they, they are actually angels. And so Abraham has this encounter with three strangers one of whom turns out to be the Lord appearing to him in a bodily form. And the question I want us to consider tonight is why did God appear to Abraham and to Sarah in human form in this story? To answer that, we're going to need to explore what's happening in this section of Scripture in, in verses 9 through 15 of Genesis chapter 18. And there are two observations I want us to begin with before we venture into the text any further. The first observation is that Abraham didn't initially know that one of the strangers was the Lord. We talked about this some last week and how the narrator of this text used the divine name, which you will notice as the word Lord in small caps, 
Throughout this text, the narrator uses the divine name, but Abraham does not refer to the, the, the man who is identified as the Lord. Abraham does not speak to him with the divine name. And so there is, there is a disconnect there. Abraham does not realize that the man who is in his presence is the Lord. But the Lord's identity did become apparent to Abraham when the Lord displayed omniscience. You'll see that unfold, particularly in verse 15, when Abraham is asked, where is Sarah? Now think about this. It's not verse 15, I'm sorry. But when the Lord asked, where is Sarah? I want you to think about that question for a moment. Because for 89 years, Sarah was not called Sarah. She was Sarai. And it wasn't until the previous chapter, in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 15, that God gave Abraham instructions to change her name. And up to this point, up to this point, no one had ever called her Sarah. In fact, it doesn't seem that outside of the immediate family, that name is known yet. And so now these strange men are dining with Abraham. And they refer to his wife as Sarah instead of Sarai. And they do it before anyone else other than Abraham. And it's there in that moment, the one who named her Sarah, the one who changed her name one chapter earlier, becomes evident to Abraham that he's in the midst of that one. So one observation I want us to notice at the outset is that Abraham does not initially know that one of these strangers is the Lord. The second thing I want you to notice, the second observation I want you to pick up on in this story, is that the stranger's visit occurred in close proximity to the events of chapter 17, particularly the whole name-changing episode. Because if you look at the two stories, the events in chapter 17 where their names are changed and the events in chapter 18 where the strangers visit, there is a phrase that appears in both texts. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 15, after instructing Abraham to change Sarah's name, the Lord indicated that she would give birth to Isaac this time next year. And then in Genesis chapter 18, and verse 10, after this stranger asks, where is Sarah? He follows that up by saying, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That phrase, this time next year, appears in chapter 17 and in chapter 18 and indicates that the events of both chapters are occurring approximately one year prior to the birth of Isaac. And we can deduce from that that these two events occurred in close proximity to one another from a chronological perspective. That will factor into our study a little bit later. But just note right now that Abraham did not initially know who he was speaking to, and the events that unfold here happen in close proximity to the events of chapter 17. With that being said, let's consider now why the Lord chose to appear to Abraham and Sarah in human form on this occasion. 
And one reason he did so is one reason he appeared to them in this fashion is so that their faith could be fortified. At this point in their story, it would seem that Abraham doesn't need his faith to be fortified. He doesn't need it to grow or be strengthened any more than it already is. He had followed God from his homeland to the promised land way back in Genesis chapter 12. You can read in Genesis chapter 14 how when he went and defeated this assemblage of kings who took Lot captive and conquered the city of Sodom, when he came back from that successful venture, the king of Sodom wanted to make an alliance with him, and he refused because Abraham had learned that God was his ally, that God was his provider, that God was his protector. And he wasn't going to align himself with any earthly kings who could take credit for his success. You can read in chapter 15 how when God uh, uh, spoke to Abraham again and, and uh, reassured him of the covenant that they had, took him outside and showed him the stars and said his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, that Abraham, we're told in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 15, that Abraham believed God. He didn't doubt. He didn't waver. He believed. And then you can read in chapter 17 how when God appeared again and spoke again of the covenant and then told Abraham that, hey, your part of the covenant is this. You and every male in your household must be circumcised. Abraham unhesitatingly obeyed. But I want you to turn back to chapter 17 for just a moment. And I want you to notice how Abraham responded when God last communicated his promise to give him a son through Sarah. His response is recorded in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 17. And it's there that we're told Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Just one chapter earlier, just a short time before these strangers appeared on his doorstep, Abraham is laughing at the possibility of having a child with Sarah. This man who is praised in, in chapter 15 for believing God expresses his doubts through his laughter. So despite all of his spiritual successes, Abraham had reached a point where God's promise was now humorous to him. And he needed his faith to be reinvigorated. Now, Abraham's not the only one who needs some help with their faith here. Because even though Abraham's going to benefit from this encounter, I don't believe he was the primary target of this encounter. I think this visit wasn't primarily for Abraham. I believe it was primarily for Sarah. Because I think Sarah's faith lagged behind Abraham's. And I think it's because at this point in the story, God had never spoken directly to Sarah. He had already, always communicated indirectly to her via Abraham. Think about it. When the covenant was initiated back in Genesis chapter 12 and in those first few verses, God communicated solely with Abraham, telling Abraham that he was going to make a great nation out of him. 
And when the covenant was renewed in Genesis chapter 15 with, with the whole uh, uh, cutting the animals in half episode, this occurred after the excursion to Egypt and the problems that it brought on. And God again communicates this covenant with Abraham, and he does so solely with Abraham. And then in chapter 17, which we've already been uh, touching base in a little bit, God renews the covenant again, this time after the Hagar debacle, and, and this time he's going to institute the, the, the circumcision in the covenant and so on. And God is once again telling Abraham about the covenant. In fact, it's in Genesis chapter 17 that for the first time, God identifies Sarah as the mother of the child that will be brought to Abraham. But once again, God is communicating solely with Abraham. But now here in Genesis chapter 18, God appears in this human form, and he's outside Abraham's tent. And he's repeating the exact same information that he had given Abraham one chapter earlier. Back in chapter 17, Abraham learned that Sarah would be the mother of Isaac and that Isaac would arrive in one year's time. Now, what's so fascinating about that is that every time God had spoken about the covenant and repeated the promise to Abraham, every time before this, God had revealed a new piece of information. You can start in Genesis chapter 12 when the covenant is first spoken, and it's there that Abraham learns he's going to have a descendant, that he's going to have an heir. Well, Abraham is... A little confused, and by Genesis chapter uh, 15, we find out that he thinks that it might just have to be one of his servants in his household, and so he names Elimelech, his servant, to be his heir. But God speaks again, renews the covenant, reminds Abraham of the promise, and specifies in Genesis chapter 15 that his heir will be his own biological son. Events unfold thereafter in which they utilize Hagar, thinking to some degree that if he bears a child with Hagar, it would still be his biological child and would therefore be the heir of the promise that God has made. But in Genesis chapter 17, when God speaks to Abraham, he gets more specific. Now it's not just the detail of it being your biological child, it will be Sarah's biological child as well, and he will come in one year's time. And so in Genesis chapter 18, when God is on his doorstep, when God is talking to him, he's not revealing any new information. He's repeating the same information about Sarah's involvement and the timing of the birth of this child. But that's because the variable in this conversation was not the information. The variable in this, this, this conversation was the audience. Because God was aware that he wasn't just talking to Abraham. In fact, Genesis chapter 18 makes it very clear, I believe it's in verse 10, that Sarah was at the door of the tent listening. So God wasn't here just to communicate with Abraham. He's here to communicate with Sarah as well. Because her faith also needed to be strengthened. Because certainly you notice how she reacted to the news. She reacted the exact same way her husband reacted one chapter earlier. She laughed to herself, according to verse 12. And here's what I want you to notice. The fact that both Abraham and Sarah laughed 
at the news of Isaac's birth in one year's time reveals that their faith had waned since first beginning this journey with God. They had endured a great deal. They had faced numerous obstacles, and they had tried to solve this infertility issue on their own. And now God's saying, in one year, in one year you're going to have the child I've promised you. And both of them struggle to believe because they both laugh. And the lesson for us to glean from God's appearance at this time in the face of this waning faith, the lesson for us to glean is that He is faithful even when we are not full of faith. See, I think the most important thing to observe regarding this encounter between God and Abraham and Sarah is that God never said to them, that's it, you laughed at me this time, I'm done. I'm not keeping my end of the deal. God never reached a point with them that he was quitting on them, that his his promise to them was something he was going to refuse to keep. God did not abandon Abraham and Sarah just because their faith was weak. And that's because God is faithful even when we're not full of faith. See, one thing Scripture declares about God is that He does not change. And as I've mentioned on numerous occasions, the thing about God that doesn't change is His character and His promises. That's because God, when God makes a promise, God's going to keep his promise. When God makes a covenant, he's never going to back out of the covenant. God doesn't change, even though you and I might, even though we're like the leaves that that will adjust color when the fall hits, God's more like an evergreen. He's steady and he never changes. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul declares that he is faithful, that God is faithful even when we're faithless. And the thing about God is, that his faithfulness is not dictated by us. It's dictated by his very own character. And I find great comfort in knowing that we serve a God who is more faithful to us than we are to him. The same God who didn't quit on Abraham and Sarah is the same God who came in the flesh as Jesus and encountered a father whose son was possessed by an evil spirit in Mark chapter 9. And I love this story because that father brought his son to Jesus and said in verse 22 of Mark chapter 9, said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He said to Jesus, if you can help. And Jesus' response in the very next verse is, if I can. There's a little bit of humor there. If I can. Really? Come on. If I can. And he goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say, all things are possible for one who believes. But the best part is what the Father confesses next. In verse 24, the Father confessed something that we would likely be too afraid to admit because he confessed that he had doubts. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. You ever been there? You ever been in the shoes of that father? Well, you believe, but to some degree you also don't believe. 
And you know what? Jesus doesn't criticize him for saying he has this level of unbelief. Jesus doesn't scold. Jesus doesn't create this into a, a teaching opportunity about the importance of faith. No, you know what Jesus does? He works with what he's got. And he casts out the evil spirit. And I'm quite certain that that man's unbelief was overcome that day. Because Jesus rebuked the evil spirit even though the Father was not full of faith. For me, that goes to show that our God is faithful to us even though we experience times when we are not full of faith. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't quit on us. He doesn't give up on us. And that is just one reason He is a God worth following. So I believe God showed up that day so that the faith of Abraham and Sarah could be fortified, so that it could be filled up again. But I also believe that God appeared that day so that their doubts could be destroyed. You know, throughout their marriage, infertility had plagued Abraham and Sarah. At the outset of their story, you can read in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 30 that she was barren, that she could not have children. And so when God entered the scene and promised Abraham that if they followed him, they would have children, it certainly was a tantalizing offer. But here they are, 25 years later and still childless. And after that whole Hagar incident, it became obvious that the infertility woes were not related to Abraham. They were related to Sarah. And certainly Sarah experienced all of the, the pain and the turmoil and the frustration that comes with many women who are unable to conceive. But she held out hope for a number of years because her husband kept telling her about the promise he received from the God that brought them that far. But at this point in their story, when he was almost 100 years old and she was almost 90 years old, a new obstacle surfaced. You can read about it in verse 11 of Genesis chapter 18, where the text says the way of women had ceased to be with her. That's the Bible's gentle way of saying that her biological clock had run out that she was no longer biologically capable of conception, even if she wasn't barren to begin with. And that's ultimately why she laughed. Look at what she said in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 12. She says, after I'm worn out, will I now have this pleasure of becoming a mother? In this rhetorical statement, Sarah revealed that she had come to the conclusion that her body was too far gone for God to use. Her faith in God's ability to perform a miracle in her body was defeated, and in her mind she had concluded that it was impossible for her to become a mother. And God's response was to ask a question that would be posed throughout Scripture. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You know what? The lesson to be gleaned for, from this appearance and from God's, from God's question about anything being too hard for him, the lesson for us to glean from that 
is that faith is laudable when it embraces the laughable. I stole that from somebody. You see, I, I, I noticed that throughout Scripture there are multiple occasions where God declared that He's greater than whatever is impossible. Think about it. It happens here with two people beyond the age of being able to conceive a child. But it also happens in the life of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah is in prison during the siege of Jerusalem. And God instructs him to purchase his cousin's land while he's in prison. And while the city is being ransacked. Well, Jeremiah did what God asked, even though it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to buy land when they were about to become Babylonian captives. But Jeremiah declared this in, in chapter 32 and verse 17. He said, Oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. See, Jeremiah came to the conclusion that, yeah, it doesn't make sense for me to buy this land right now because I'm about to become a captive and I'm sitting here in prison and I can't get out anyway. But God, I'm not going to assume anything's too hard for you, so I will do what you have asked of me. Then you can skip ahead to Luke chapter 1 where the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she had been chosen by God to bear his son. And Mary asked, how will this be since I am a virgin? And Gabriel explained how God would miraculously cause her conception just as he miraculously caused Elizabeth's conception in her old age. Then Gabriel declared this in, in verse 37. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary believed that. And so her response to this whole thing, this whole thing that didn't make sense, was, I'm a servant of the Lord. Do what you wish. Because she came to the conclusion, just like Jeremiah, that God can do anything. And then you can go over to Mark chapter 10 where Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus' disciples were astonished by that because the guy they just encountered was a rich guy who kept every law in Mosaic law and yet went away sorrowful because Jesus had said he needed to sell everything he had and give it to the poor. Yeah, I just referenced the rich ruler again. And so the disciples, after hearing Jesus declare that, that it's easier for an animal to go, a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, they, they asked him afterwards, well, then who can be saved? If that guy who was so moral that he kept all of the law can't be saved because he's rich, then who can be? And Jesus' response in Mark chapter 10, was with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. See, all of these stories reveal that God can conquer any obstacle. And that means that as his followers, 
We must, as one preacher said, believe in a laughable future that's more real than the visible present. Believe in a laughable future that's more real than a visible present. But what does that mean? That means that we make choices today that the world may laugh at, but we do so because we believe in a future that is no laughing matter. For Noah, that meant building an ark despite the fact that owning a boat in a world that's never experienced rain was laughable. For David, that meant taking on a giant despite the fact that he was undersized and undertrained and underequipped, and the odds of him winning were laughable. For Abraham and Sarah, that meant, in the gentlest of terms, they had to once again do the things that a couple who wants to have a baby do, despite the fact that trying to conceive when you're 99 and 89 years old is laughable. For you and I, that may mean refusing to compromise our sexual purity before marriage, even though the world around us thinks that's abnormal. Or it may mean giving a portion of our income to the kingdom of God, even though the world points at us and reminds us of all the things we could use that money for. And it may mean that we refuse to participate in a particular sport or a particular organization or a particular opportunity because it infringes on the time we assemble with the body. And the world finds that silly. There are any number of of things we can identify that the world laughs at that we do because we're sold out for God. And the point is that if we believe God is greater than the impossible, then we're going to be willing to do the laughable because we seek the reward that He promises to give those whom He deems acceptable. Let me say that again. If we believe God is greater than the impossible, then we're going to be willing to do the laughable because we seek the reward that He promises to give those whom He deems acceptable. And here's the thing. You can't be acceptable to God without believing that He's the God of the impossible. Because without faith, it is impossible to please Him as Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says. So when I ask you, do you believe that He's the God of the impossible? Because if you do, then you'll be willing to do the laughable. And that reminds me of a legend I heard regarding an African-American community somewhere down in Florida back in the days before the passage of the 15th Amendment, which legally protected the rights of African-American men to vote. And that community would set up a place to vote during their elections. Now, their votes were never counted toward a federal, state, or local election, but they still set up that place, and they still voted anyway. And one day, somebody asked them, why do you vote if, you're, if your vote's not going to count? And their simple answer was this. We're just practicing. And here's the point. The decisions we make, the behaviors we embrace, the opportunities we refuse, the attitudes we possess, they may all seem laughable to the world, but we do them 
because we're just practicing for that day when Christ will return and escort us to the presence of the Lord for all eternity. And the way we see it, why wait to start living the way we're going to be living for all eternity? Why not start practicing that life now? Because those that don't will realize it when it's too late. And that's certainly no laughing matter. See, tonight we look at Abraham and Sarah's interaction with the Lord because initially they laughed. But in the end, they learned that the God they serve is the God of the impossible. Because one year later, they were holding a baby boy whose name was Laughter. Do you believe that God is the God of the impossible? Because I guarantee right now some of you are facing what you think is impossible. It may be a medical diagnosis. It may be a financial difficulty. It may be a, 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 a relationship that's on the brink. It may be the inability to bear children. It may be the inability to find a spouse. It may be the loss of a job. But know this, what seems impossible for you will never be impossible for him. And so tonight we're encouraged to turn over whatever the impossibility we face to the one who is greater than the impossible. So tonight, if you need to respond to the invitation and turn over your life with all of its impossibilities, to the one who sees nothing impossible. We invite you to do so while together we stand and sing.